The year is 1197 and the long night has begun. When darkness falls, monsters walk the streets and alleys of the cities, congregating to plot and scheme. Fearing fire, the cross, and the lupines of the wild, the elder Cainites nonetheless seek to guide and control human civilization through centuries-old plots, while the younger vampires scrabble for power, influence, and prestige. Welcome to the world of Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 6 of the World of Dark Ages podcast. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. Now, before we get started, you may have noticed that we have started a new series, Side Quests, which will be running on the weeks that we're not doing the main World of Dark Ages. Also, we're kind of interested in how many people are listening. There's probably some technical way of doing that, but yeah, I'm not that skilled with the technical stuff. So people pop by our Facebook page and say hi, maybe. Also, suggestions have been made that we should do a Discord server or maybe even a Patreon. If you think we should have a Discord, uh, you can go by Facebook and let us know and we'll set it up. Anyway, on to today's book. Three Pillars, written by Leah Crow, Tom DeMaio, Eric J. Griffin and Michael Lee, developed by Justin Achille, Emperor of Byzantium. Yes, it says Justin Achille, Emperor of Byzantium. So, Peter, your initial thoughts? Well... There's uh, there's a note on historical accuracy uh, just in the beginning of the book, and uh, it, it, I'm not going to read the whole of it, but it starts uh, with the following. If you're looking for a real-world historical veracity, you've come to the wrong place. Uh, in the process of developing Vampire the Dark Ages books, certain concessions have to be made in order to preserve the drama of the setting. There are anachronistic terms, historical events taken out of their chronology, Viewpoints that differ significantly from what we know today, and even people and places that didn't exist. So I think it's quite clear that we shouldn't even be doing this book because they've thrown all kinds of historical accuracy out the window. What do you think? You know what? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Um, there's there's no real reason to uh, to look uh, further into this book. So uh, my name is Jacob, and um, see you next time. Yeah, and I'm Peter. Bye. Okay, okay, okay. So obviously we're gonna do this book, but uh, let's talk about this this disclaimer sidebar. Uh, yeah, uh, and I I see why they have it, and um, uh, like I I don't mind um, doing it uh, when it serves a purpose. Like they say that they they want to. Uh, they say that it is intentional to to make basically make things cooler. Um, and uh, if if you have a specific purpose of doing that, uh, I I don't mind at all. But I would argue that you most often don't really need to because history as it was was cool enough as it was. Um, and and often you don't really need to like if if you want to have a king uh, survive for a few more years because then he would be able to do this. Or if you move this event a few years back and forth yeah sure that could be cool but you could probably find something equally cool that actually did happen um, and for me it would just be weird because as as a history nerd i would start thinking about basically the butterfly effect where okay if you change this then you would also have to change this and if if this king is still alive then he would have to go and do this and the, so so for me it's kind of feels 
pointless really you you could like you said you could probably find some equal equally cool event or if since this is a role-playing game you could just make up something and and i rather see uh, i i rather see uh, made up history rather than uh, change history because um I, I would just start thinking about the consequences and, and then it would get weird. It would distract. Yeah, the, the, I, I totally agree with the butterfly effect because that's what I would be thinking as well. Like, how is this going to affect the whole thing? Uh, I mean, sometimes I, I'm, uh, I'm totally on board with the changes. An example would be um, I'm currently a player in Transylvania Chronicles and my character has become the prince of a city called Kronstadt. Mm. And uh, they, <clears throat> the city has the headquarters of the Teutonic Order in um, in um, in Transylvania, and originally that was uh, they moved there after the game starts, and in uh, the setting book they're already established, and that's just moving there. Uh, establishment of their headquarters back a couple of decades. That's not really a big problem, and it does something cool for the city. Um, so, so I'm okay with some changes, especially here where it has a purpose of saying, "All right, one of the things this city has going for it is the Teutonic Order." Mm. Um, so, but but the butterfly effect is is very uh, important. I also, I mean, I understand why they put it in this book because this book contains an awful lot of historical research, and it's basically their way way of saying, "Okay, we may have made some." some mistakes but i mean as long as they've done the historical research uh sometimes you come across some stuff where you're just thinking hang on how on earth did they arrive at this i want to use a modern day example i don't know if you remember but um i think it was in the second edition uh storytellers guide to the sabbath where they took a look at the world as a whole and they had scandinavia yeah do you remember uh, that one do you have a specific example well, they, they, they said Scandinavia, and then they said, if I recall correctly, Denmark, Sweden, and Holland. Oh, yeah. Isn't that even in... <laughs> they, they made a book called Scandinavia by Night that has basically Sweden, Denmark, and, and uh, the, the I, Netherlands I, I, or something like that. Uh, there, I, there was never Scandinavia by Night as far as I know, but I... Then it, yeah, I, then, it's, I, then it's the Sabbath. Yeah, yeah you're, you're completely Yeah, right. where, where they had yeah. that, and you're, and you're just going like, okay... How the hell did they arrive at this? What what yeah. what what happened here? Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, sh I I really want to point out we're doing, we're looking at this uh, both as a gaming book, but also as a history book, and we're looking at at all of these books from a historical perspective. But it's it's not our intention to be a mystery science theater three thousand about it and point out every little yeah. historical inaccuracy yeah. and laugh at it. For example, uh, things like oh, there should be square towers instead of round towers. I mean, that's not really important. I'm just pointing it out because quite randomly, I happen to know yeah. about the the involvement of towers. It's not like I'm saying, ha-ha, they put in the wrong towers. It's just, you know, if if you want to be even more historically accurate, you should have a square tower instead yeah, of a round tower. Exactly. It doesn't matter that much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, and especially for a game, uh, like, it, it wouldn't... It wouldn't affect your game in any way that that uh, if uh, the, a castle has square round towers, uh, or or if it does, please invite me to that game because then it has some very specific details that I would like to know about. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Um, so yeah, 
that I I think I think that's um it I I completely understand that they put it uh, in there and and I I tend to agree with with some of it but also I mean if you're doing a historical game uh, don't be afraid to say okay we're trying to uh, to do as much research as possible yeah. but sometimes we miss something um I, I I do it myself I'm currently doing a revision of my storytellers vault book about weapons and armor because I made some pretty glaring mistakes in the first one mm. so uh, yeah. so yeah it happens but uh, let's get on with uh, with actually looking at the book. And as usual, we start with the art. And I have to say, I love the cover. Very atmospheric. I don't know if you have anything to say about the lady on the cover's clothes, then. Yeah, well, um, I, I agree. I, I really like uh, the, the atmosphere of a lot of the art. Um, and uh, for those who, who can't see the cover, it's, uh, it's basically... Um, three statues representing the three pillars holding up a castle holding up uh, a vampire uh, sitting on top so it's uh, if if the symbology doesn't hit you then um, i can't help you uh, but yeah she's she's wearing uh, the the cloak she's wearing isn't actually that bad for this time period. no i love i love the cloak pin yeah the, exactly the cloak pin uh, is is very uh, fitting but then she also wears what seems to be other uh, either uh, some kind of, of um, thigh high uh, black leather boots or or stay up socks or or some stockings <laughs> uh, and she's even though showing off a bit of thigh uh, and on the sleeve that we can see on her arm she has this for some reason in a lot of of fantasy and and what's supposed to be medieval art uh people like straps being wrapped around oh, either, yeah, either yeah. like leggings or or sleeves and stuff like that and um yeah it, it just looks weird uh but again uh the except for those uh, tiny details because i'm guessing that they're going for the kind of sexy seductress vampire ruling from the shadows kind of feel um so except for the for some slight weird uh, details it's uh, it's a really nice cover yeah uh the internal art is generally pretty good as well um and i think it really fits the book we do have some anachronistic swords and armor on pages 29 and 129 yeah but the only real complaint i have are the pictures in chapter three that have written signs because you know obviously people of this time couldn't read yeah and and speaking of the, I think we're talking about the same picture on uh, on page one twenty nine where there's a sword and a helmet. Uh, yeah, and, the 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 dog dog snout. Yeah, helmet. exactly. The or uh, dog snout uh, or uh, pig's uh, uh, face bassinet, yeah. and it it's very clearly what uh, what they're trying to depict. It's just that it's it's kind of the. Uh, wish version of of uh, ordering a helmet and like, this is what yes. I ordered. This is what I got. Uh, you know, the meme, uh, you know what I'm talking about. I I do I do know that meme. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and there there are some um, space elf Nosferatu's on page one three seven as well. Uh, but yeah, overall the uh, the artwork is uh, very evocative and and cool and. Uh, very greedy as well there's um like i can't remember the page but there's there's um 
I think he's supposed to be some kind of hermit, but it's it's uh, a person in in tattered clothes, uh, carrying a bunch of skulls uh, or or severed heads at least on on a long pole. Um, oh yeah, yeah, I, I I know the picture. Yeah, and and that um, uh, for some reason that I um, it 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 should kind of give uh, take your thoughts to to Warhammer and skulls and everything, but I'm thinking more like the the Dance of Death motif that is very popular in in medieval art, and and um, you you have um, especially in the 14th century when when you got uh, the plague and the Black Death, you had a lot of artwork depicting. Uh, people dancing with skeletons uh, representing death and and stuff like that. So so that's where my thoughts went. So uh, yeah, yeah. The memento mori. Mm. Remember that in, you're going to die. Yeah. Motif was was a, a big one mm. in uh, in medieval art. Yeah. So uh, so it's it's appropriate that we have it here. Mm. Um, we start with the uh, with the intro chapter, which is about a page's worth of information. Uh, we get another reminder that this is not a history textbook and some suggestions on further reading. Yeah. I've not much to say here really for me. No, me, me neither. Um, I, uh, I went through the list to see uh, which of those books I've, uh, I've actually read. Uh, and uh, the only one that I know straight away is The Medieval Soldier. Uh, and that uh, at least um, uh, the editions that are um, illustrated or is really nice because it's uh, still for being uh, a fairly early book. It uh, it's it's still very accurate. Uh, it doesn't have like the oh the, you had to be hoisted up by a crane when you were wearing full armor and and swords weighed uh, many many kilograms because they didn't. So, mm. Uh, so yeah, yeah um, if if you're a weapons and armor nerd, I can recommend that one. Yeah, of, of of these further readings, the only one that I actually know is Life and Work in Medieval Europe, which I think I have, but I don't think I've read it. Mm. Um, so chapter one is about nobles. Uh, the framing device is the son of a dying nobleman being sent to his father's liege lord's court to be trained as a squire. Uh, and I think this this framing story works really well. And one thing that I like, uh, though I think it could have been perhaps explained a little better, is that the liege lord in question is a baron. And um, people who are only familiar with the noble hierarchy as it exists today, especially the British one they might have watched Downton Abbey, they might wonder how a simple baron can have a large amount of nobles below him and several castles to his name. However, at this point, a baron was simply any nobleman who held some or all of their land directly from the king. Yeah. So a count or a duke was also a baron in addition mm. to their other titles. Yeah. But um, but you could also have a count who is technically... Uh, uh, the, the, the title of count is technically uh, much higher or better, or however you want to call it, than, than yeah. just uh, baron. Uh, so you could have a count who is still... Uh, under fealty to a baron uh, so mm. uh, and this is of course uh, and you could even have uh, kings that uh, owed fealty to to uh, their liege lords uh, which is basically how the uh, hundred years war started uh, yes if, if you want if you want complicated um, feudal uh, systems then take a look at the whole interplay between the English king and the French yeah. king because that was that got messy <laughs> yeah I, I suggest uh, ad, uh, adaptations by Shakespeare because at least 
those are entertaining and, and not as dry and, and academical as some other uh, dissertations yeah. on the, the sub. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we, we get the story of, of the young man coming under the sway of a canine interspersed with the historical mm. info. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the framing story? Uh, I, I really like the framing story. It, um, it's a very stereotypical and almost cliched story, but then again, I, I'm, I'm guessing that when this story actually came out or was published, it, it's kind of created the cliches. So um, we're, we're looking at this almost 30 years after um, it was published. So yeah, of course, we're gonna have heard this, the same story over and over again since then. But when it first came out, it was probably not that uh, unoriginal so so yeah i i really liked it it it, it has a bunch of, of stereotypes and um and stuff like that uh but it's still very well written yeah i think so as well i think it's it's quite an inspirational story and like you said this was 30 years ago so uh the tropes weren't played out at that yeah. point uh in the the sort of shall we say more historical descriptive thing we start with a description of the castle uh, that our young squire arrives at, at uh, as a way of describing castles in general. Yeah. Now, I, I would have liked to have had a more generalized castle description since this is a very large and modern castle yeah. for the times. But otherwise, this is very, very good. Sure, we once again get round towers rather than square, but as as mentioned before, that's, that's not really important. No. Yeah, w what I would have liked uh, from, from like a, uh, a gaming perspective was... It was just an uh, an example map of like this yeah, is what definitely, a castle because definitely. it's they they there are some pictures but it's it's more like the um, to set the mood so to speak so so you you don't really if if you don't know what a castle from this period should look like or if you're not very good with following the uh, the descriptions in the text, you really don't get any good idea on what the castle actually looks like. Um, and and yeah. here, I I also just wanted to point out that at some point, they mentioned that uh, the the Baron uh, is able to field fifty mountain knights, which uh, means that he he should be loaded, because fifty mountain knights. Uh, yeah, is is a lot, uh, and this again, well, they, they might uh, they they might have meant that that he was able to call on fifty mounted knights yes, rather than field them himself. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, or and and uh, um, it might be that at at this um, when this book was published, uh, the the term uh, men at arms, uh, which basically means uh, um, uh, a mounted uh, soldier who fights with the equipment. Basically, it's it's um an unknighted uh, soldier fighting uh, yeah. with uh, on on horseback uh and and that uh, phrase hadn't really hit the, the uh, colloquial um what do you call it the, the... yeah yeah the the general language yeah, that, exactly. that people knew uh so uh but yeah except for that and and a few other um like uh, tiny details the the general description of uh of things uh, is uh, is quite nice. Um, I I might uh, come back to some other details later, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the next part concerns the a noble's household, and again, really good info. Mm. The only complaint I have is uh, is the line: 
It is common throughout Christendom for husbands to treat their wives despicably once the marriage has been consummated and its material benefits gained. Yeah. Now, you can argue that this might be true in the world of darkness, mm. which is darker than our world, but you have to remember that the wife in question is the daughter of a nobleman, usually with noble brothers and male cousins, yeah. and a husband could get into a lot of trouble if he treats her very badly. Yeah. So, but that's my only comment on this section. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with that assessment. Uh, and what's fun is that as a part of this framing story, uh, there is uh, a sister that gets into trouble and then her family uh, basically goes uh, goes out for revenge. So uh, it's a bit contradictive. I, I hadn't actually thought about that until you mentioned it. Yeah. Uh... Now, uh, next we get two parts on the daily life of a noble court. And since we start with the nobles getting dressed, I'll let you take the lead on this one, Peter. Uh, well, yeah, the, um, it's, uh, the, the description of the clothes um, isn't actually that... Um, it's a bit simplistic. Uh, and again, uh, I'm, I'm missing the hats. Uh, but, <laughs> but overall... Uh, overall, it's it's actually quite good. It's it's I, I don't have too much to um, to comment on other than than that uh, it's it's a kind of like I said si- simplistic uh, description. Like it's either you have wool and linen or you have silks, and it's not like even if you did own uh, silk clothes, you wouldn't wear them every day and. And sometimes, um, I think it's at some point, it's described that um, knights wear uh, silk um, uh, surcoats uh, during uh, during a, a, a tournament or a joust. And yeah, yeah you could do that, but no. it's it's kind of like wearing a tuxedo when when going to when, when fighting in in a, a mixed martial arts match. It's yeah, you're that, just going to ruin your fancy really clothes, and you don't want to do yeah. that. Um, You're not James Bond. Yeah, exactly. So, but no, they uh, they mentioned the linen underclothes, then um, uh, woolen hose. Um, here, a small detail: they they say that it's tastefully colored in black or brown. Uh, mm, brown. No. If you could afford something else, um, you you probably did because that's a very pedestrian color, uh, especially for this time period. Uh, black was at times a very popular color, but again, if you if you could have something more eye-catching, you would probably uh, wear it instead because yeah, yeah, if if you got it flaunted exactly, yeah. So yeah, uh, I have a few minor comments uh, because like the rest of this chapter, I think this section is pretty damn good. However, they say that carrying a hunting bird on the wrist is the mark of status and privilege. Now, some birds like falcons were only for nobles, but peasants did hunt with with what was considered lesser birds, like, for example, owls. Mm. Um, and under hunting, they mention a small hatchet called a Danish axe. Yeah. Uh, now, <laughs> Dane axe is the name that is now used for the two-handed axe used during the Viking Age. Yeah. We don't have any um, any uh, proof that it was called a Dane axe back then, but we call it a Dane axe yeah. now. I've never heard... A Danish axe used to describe a small hunting axe, and I, I specifically tried to do some research, and I don't know where they got this idea from. No, me, uh, so, me so, neither. That that stumped me as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, but the uh, so, so yeah, the description of, of hunting as being a big thing uh, was uh, I, I like the inclusion of it because yeah. hunting was a big thing, and it was 
not only a way of putting meat on the table, it was um, it, it was a way of, of exercise, uh, it was a way of, of training uh, for war, because not only... Um, because un unlike nowadays, when you sit in, in, in a hunting tower or, or stalk around for a few hours with a gun and then you just um, shoot an animal and, and then gut it and, and take it home, uh, hunts could go on for a long time. So you had to be uh, you, you had to be well exercised and, and um, have stamina to be able to often you, you chased animals uh, on, on foot or on horseback uh, and then when you kill them, you, you often had uh, had to kill them up close with spears or uh, sometimes even to finish them off with uh, daggers or swords. Uh, exactly. Which, yeah. which was and it was an activity. F Sorry. Yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, well, so, so that was that was a way to, to train yourself to um, to be blooded uh, in battle and, and having to actually uh, kill something that didn't want to be killed by you while, while screaming and fighting back and, and having blood and guts um, smeared in your face, basically. Yeah, and it was an activity that, that brought the whole court out. Mm. Uh, there's a reason why you have this uh, this idea of the spirited young noble uh, lady who is a great rider and a great shot with a, a bow or a crossbow mm. uh, and and a great hunter because this was this was fully acceptable. I mean, you it, it was it, it wasn't considered acceptable to have a a woman who who fought with a sword and a lance on horseback, but you could most definitely have a woman who was an expert rider, great with yeah. uh, a bow or crossbow, uh, even good with a a spear mm. because she was a hunter. Yeah. So yeah, hunting was a huge thing. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just um, uh, about the riding that uh, for for those uh, of our listeners who didn't know the side saddle uh, wasn't invented uh, at this time and I think it didn't show up until the like 17th or 18th, 18th century even so uh, if you're going to have uh, women riding uh, don't have them use a side saddle no exactly uh, the last thing I, I wanted to mention was the description of the evening meal uh, it, it sounds like a very grandiose affair, even for a wealthy baron, yeah. for just an evening meal. It seems more like a small feast to celebrate an important guest or a holy day. I mean, even for a wealthy, even a wealthy baron isn't going to be able to serve that much meat every day. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, feasts could be extremely fanciful and... Uh, and you often did stuff with the food uh, in, in the presentation. Uh, so, for example, I know that, uh, and this may, it, it might be a bit later in the 1300s, but um, I know uh, that there, there's a description of a feast where they had um, basically sewn different uh, animals together to, to create, like, fantastical beasts that you ate. So you had, like, um, I think there was... A, a, uh, like a, a rabbit mermaid kind of deal where they had sewed <laughs> a, a rabbit or a hare together with a fish uh, and you had whole swans uh, propped up and, and decorated and stuff like that. Yeah, you plucked a swan, roasted it, and then you put the feathers yeah, back on. Exactly. And, so. and you, you could have like um, baked pies uh, where where they, you bake the pie, of course, first, and then you cut the lid off and then you put... Um, birds, usually doves, in under the lid, and so when they um, 
when the person cutting the meat, uh, which was a big deal, just showing off how good you were uh, cutting meat or pies or whatever, uh, when they cut into the pie, the, the doves uh, would at least hopefully uh, fly out and it would be a big show. Uh, so, yeah. so yeah, if, um, if you're depicting a huge feast, then uh, the more the merrier, I would say. Uh, yeah. But this this particular one seems um, a bit too much just for uh, for an ev- everyday feast. Uh, there's there's another thing, or, or did you want to add more about the food? Uh, just one last thing, and that is uh, they correctly describe the quote unquote plates as mm. being slices of bread, yeah. the trenchers. But in this description, it seems to be slices of freshly baked bread. Whereas I've always had the impression that they were slices of stale bread because that was harder so it worked better as a plate and obvious and also uh that it was a way of using stale bread so in my i i i don't know if if they would be using fresh loaves for trenchers at least not in in common meals no i i don't think so as well like you said it's it's a way to uh, to use up or, or not, rather not waste uh, bread that you already have and and i can't say for sure if some fancy pants uh, baron or other didn't uh, have have trenches of fresh bread just to show off at some point uh, but yeah it, it's it, it's better to use stale bread because then it won't get as messy um, yeah but but as said in there's a description or there's a point uh, um, in in the description of everyday life that I would actually think that you would uh, remark on um, and that's on let's see page 18 where they talk about the the kind of people and and servants and workers living in the castle uh i think i might have missed that one what what they're, is it specifically they're, they're talking about um uh the the different uh, workers that live in a castle that you have a, a, a mill for uh, grinding slaughterhouses and stuff like that and then uh they have they say that the smith forges all the necessary weapons and tools in the bailey uh, uh, well, in 1197, I could certainly see the castle blacksmith doing that, uh, but later they would probably be importing sword blades from elsewhere. Yeah, well, um, uh, they, they would probably at this time as well, uh, and because that, that went back to... There are um, Viking-era blades that uh, have been found in Scandinavia that have been imported from Germany, but that is that is true, yeah. Uh, but but I don't think the, the like the big blade trade wasn't hadn't really started up. So it's it's I, I would say it's like fifty fifty. Mm. You might, for example, have the Baron himself importing a blade from Solingen, but having his uh, his retinue rely on locally forged yeah. blades. But I the the way it's described here, where it says that the smith forges all the necessary weapons and tools, you you didn't you you didn't have one person person doing everything. No, you no, had no, specialized no. like you had horseshoe makers, you had nail makers, and and of course many of them could do many different things. But but even uh, even even as a at this point as a uh, tradesperson you you would most likely have some kind of of specialization especially in a castle yeah, this big exactly. you would you would probably have say two to three uh master smiths with some journeymen and apprentices yeah. uh, helping them out so yeah mm. um so um after this we we get a bit about squires being trained 
and I really like a good description of the armor mm. of the time, so no comments for me there. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, they train with sword, and, and Lance probably would also train with other weapons, but it, it, there's nothing really to complain about here. Uh, yeah, I I agree with that. It's I, I like that they include the... Uh, they, first of all, they they use the word mail and not chain mail, uh, and, yes, and then they mentioned the, um, the mittens or gloves that uh, the, that cover the hands uh, because uh, you you often miss that uh, in uh, um, in a lot of especially the artwork and and depictions. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, that's a good one. Uh, we then have sections on law and order and uh, noble holding court. And again, very little to say, but this is all good. I like how they don't shy away from explaining just how common and accepted torture is at this oh, yeah, point yeah. for extraction confessions from a suspected criminal. Yeah, uh, I I agree. Uh, and overall, it's uh, I like the chapter on, uh, on the law and order. Uh, what I, I would... Um, Put, uh, or, or I would remember that this is an example of how it could be somewhere. This doesn't mean that it was the same all over Europe. No, no, is, this is so, this is specifically set in France. Yeah, exactly. But even in in France, it, it could differ from time yeah. to time and place to place. Uh, and what is uh, especially important to remember is that some methods of, for example, torture and um, uh, or execution could be okay to uh, inflict on, for example, heretics, but not on on uh, Christians and so on and so on. So, so if you want to uh, deep uh, dive deeper into different kind of, of torture methods that are uh, allowed for for different <laughs> different kinds of people, then you could probably uh, have lots of fun. Um, I'm going to mention that. Uh, they they mentioned the rack uh, and doing research for this episode. Um, it, it wasn't actually that common in this time period. In uh, apparently in England, it didn't show up until fourteen forty seven, when a guy called John Holland, Duke of Exeter, um, who was uh, basically in charge of torture at the Tower of London. Uh, introduce it, and it was uh, called uh, the Duke of Exeter's daughter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, his daughter had a nice rack. Um, um, yeah, you said it, not I. Uh, <laughs> sorry. No, don't worry. About it. Uh, and then, of course, they mentioned that uh, uh, people are uh, beheaded with an axe. Uh, and of course, if you were a nobleman, uh, it was a sign of your status that you would be beheaded with a sword. Uh, yeah. Um, yes, so the next section is on marriage and celebration, uh, celebrations leading into a section on tournaments. Before the tournament, uh, my only comment is that I like the fact that they use the term trouvère for entertainers. Uh, the section is set in northern France and mm. trouvère is the northern French term for a troubadour. Yeah. Uh, the word troubadour is, is southern and troubadours were seen as... Uh, more socially acceptable, where trouvères were more of the sort of... They, they could be seen as the sort of, of wandering scoundrel yeah. entertainer. Uh, anyway, before I say my piece on the tournaments, do you have any uh, comments on this area? Uh, no, I, I again, I think it was um, uh, well-written and uh, well-researched, like you mentioned, that they used the word trouvère. Uh, 
Um, and there's just one. Uh, I'm I'm gonna be a bit nitpicky because they mentioned that the <laughs> word blackmail comes from uh, yes. uh, from from knights uh, participating in tournaments uh, wearing blackened armor. Uh, or oh, no, sorry that that when they um, what you could do in a, in a tournament or a joust was basically to to capture uh, your opponent and keep him for ransom. Um, and and this is true. Uh, but then when you set him free, you wouldn't have taken care of his armor, so it would have become blackened. And uh, and that's the that's the origin, uh, according to this book, for the term blackmail. Uh, and from what I uh, have been able to find out, uh, it has nothing to do with this. It's actually quite a late term uh, that most likely originates from uh, about the 1500s when you had a lot of border skirmishes. Uh, between Scotland and England, and you had border mm, skirmishes. I think I've heard this one as well. Yeah, you, you had uh, skirmishes between Scotland and England for a long time, but uh, at this time, uh, there um, the, the phrase uh, came about because uh, it basically means a rent or or a bribe that you pay not to be raided, uh, and mm. and blackmail or black rent means that you pay it in in corn or uh, foodstuffs or other uh, as opposed to white rent which was that you paid in silver uh, so so that's uh, that whole section on on blackmailing in this chapter is a bit misleading um, <laughs> uh, so yeah uh, mm. so uh, interestingly when describing the tournament uh, they say that in earlier times tournaments were just mock battles with little pageantry, just a way for knights to train for war. However, this being set in 1197, tournaments were actually still little more than mock battles. Yeah. Uh, the tournament described in the book is more appropriate for 1230 or 1242 than 1197, mm. even in France, uh, which is where the it, it was sort of all the new stuff started yeah, in the, France. The fancy stuff. I, yeah, I like it's, that it's not described as a massive 15th century affair. Mm. One could perhaps say that K-Knights have used their influence to speed up the development of tournaments into a more organized affair yeah. than in our world as a way to gather more people together in one place. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's not something I'm going to complain yeah. that much about. Um, the last section is on war and is quite short. I have no comments on the info given here. What about you, Peter? Uh, no, again, the... Uh talking about being able to to field 50 mounted knights uh that's a lot of knights just be aware of that um oh yes yeah so, oh, uh, because yes. i'm i'm actually uh, going to mention uh just a, just a small detail it, it they talk about uh, the weapons of war uh and mm. and it says that the the peasant levies would go to war with sledgehammers, pitchforks, uh, or, or simple clubs. And if you were lucky, you would have a rusty sword or a spear. Uh, you would most likely have a spear because that is very yes, cheap and very easy much. to produce. Uh, very and, easy and to it's use. Quite, um, it's quite effective even with little training. Uh, and what's also interesting is that, uh, at least in, in Sweden, I don't actually know uh, the, the details on for other countries, but... For Sweden, starting about this time, but especially in, in the uh, coming uh, centuries, there were actually provincial laws that described exactly what kind of uh, arms and armor 
uh, every free man had to have just in case of war, uh, which is also why you had quite well-equipped um, peasants fighting the Danes uh, on the island of Gotland at the Battle of Visby mm. in 1361. Uh, this came quite later in, in other countries. I have a book on mm. it uh, which focuses on, on Germany. Uh, and that only, in Germany, it only really came about with the rise of the free imperial cities. Oh, okay. Um, but it, it makes sense in a country like Sweden, um, where the population is so spread out over a yeah. large area. Uh, and and um, uh, compared to other countries, Sweden, the, the peasantry had uh, quite a, a high level of, of, if you want to call it independence or uh, non-servitude, perhaps is a better word. Um, and, and then, of course, in England, you had, I think it started around this time when you started to get laws that... Uh, people should train with uh, bows and arrows uh, after yeah. um, after going to church on Sundays and not play football because that's not a good way <laughs> to prepare for war. Now, considering how they play oh, football, yeah. might have yeah, been exactly. a good way to, to train for war anyway. Uh, yeah, so that was uh, that was that. So we then go on to chapter two, which is about the Catholic Church. Mm. Now, this is organized differently than the previous chapter and start with a solid focus on Cainites and their relation to the church. I like the previous chapter's approach more, and I think this chapter is a bit disorganized and confusing, but I don't know if that's just me. Yeah, I, I actually agree. There, um, It seems like the, the editing um, from here on now on certain things could be better. Um, I'm, I'm just going to mention it now before I forget it. Uh, there's... Um, Later on, there's there's a list of uh, guilds in Paris from this oh, time. Oh yeah, and I yeah, really yeah. like the list because it shows kind of like what's important and what's less important. But uh, the list is organized in in the size of the guilds. I would much rather have it in alphabetical order because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. I was going through the list and okay, did they have a guild for this? And okay, so how how many would be in this guild? And then I would have to start scanning. Uh, by mm, that, and we yeah. just please make lists in alphabetical order. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, as mentioned, we start with a look at Cainites and how they try to exploit the church. The first section is called the Rock of Peter. So, Peter, mm. rock on. Yeah. Well, I, um, <laughs> I I like the whole uh, the whole setup um, on on how they describe the relationship between. Uh, the church and or, or religion rather because they mention they um, they, they mention the subject in, in many different ways uh, and and yeah. what I especially uh, when reading this I realized that I really like the fact that they make uh, clan la sombra so connected uh, to Catholicism because there's there's something about the way that uh, the la sombra described as being uh, Kind of like the the not necessarily the decadent but the more corrupted and and hedonistic uh, version of of nobility and and rulership. Yeah, they're not the practical and pragmatic. Yeah, exactly, uh, and, like and it goes true. very well uh, hand in hand with um, how the Catholic Church uh, has been, uh, especially in in a world of darkness uh, version of of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, there are two things that I really like about this section. Uh, the first is the short lexicon that explains terms relating to the mm. Catholic Church, which helps give an insight into the organization of the church. 
And second, there is the short history of the church, its rise from a minor faith in Palestine to the all-dominating religion of, of Europe centered in Rome. However, I feel this could be expanded and didn't really need to be tied into the canine influence of the church. Uh, and a quick note, under the heading of uh, other supernaturals, we once again get my pet peeve of mentioning specific terms from other game yeah, lines. Yeah, uh, exactly. And, and again, like... I'm I'm glad that they didn't expand on it further, but they they could have just, uh, yeah, at, at least use the the vampire terms when when you're in the vampire yeah. place. So uh, the main part of the rest of the chapter up to heresies concerned the church. Uh, as it is in Europe in 1197. Mm. And this is a really good section, in my opinion. Yeah. In addition to describing the church from Rome on down to the village church, it also spends a long time talking about monasteries and their organization. Yeah. I think this section is essential reading for any storyteller setting a game in Christian lands and for any player wanting to play a character that was a cleric uh, in life. I, I learned a fair bit reading this, and since I'm currently playing a former priest La Sombra, <laughs> who seeks to influence the church. Well, this was very inspirational for me. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I would like to throw in uh, just some additional uh, trivia. Uh, for example, when they talk about what kind of people become uh, monks, uh, they, hmm. uh, in, in a different part, they specifically mentioned that, uh, that priests, uh, or at least the village priests, uh, can't have been soldiers. Uh, but from... From from what I've gathered, uh, monks were actually um, not not very uh, seldom former soldiers because mm. uh, usually if you were a professional soldier or or had gone out soldiering, it meant that you didn't have any land to inherit, so you had to do something else, or perhaps you got injured uh, in in the war, uh, and then if you didn't have any other trade that you could make a living on. Uh, Becoming a monk and living out your days in a monastery uh, would probably not be uh, a good way to, well, not end your life, but but live out the rest mm. of your life if if you're and, and, injured or maimed. Uh, yeah, and also it, it would be a good way to cleanse your soul from all the killing you've yeah, done. Yeah, un unless, of course, you were killing uh, heathens and, and heretics, because then you would Yeah, have in that a, case, your soul was quite clean. To, uh, to paradise, but... Uh, and. For for the um, uh, weapon and and fighting geeks, uh, there are uh, at least one fighting manual from from the 1300s that is depicting um, on the very nice illustrations. They, it's actually depicting monks uh, fighting. Yep. So the I-33. Yeah. So so this would probably explain uh, why they they use monks as examples because. You probably did have quite a few monks that uh, that could fight um, a bit. Yeah. Um, so, uh, as mentioned, we have a section on heresies. Mm. It's short, and I think it could have been expanded since heresies uh, is a source of a lot of interesting conflicts, yeah. both physical and theological, in Christian Europe at this time. However, the info given is all good, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. I um, really don't have anything else to, to add to that, except that if uh, uh, if, uh, if you want to uh, expand your knowledge on the Cathars uh, in a very relaxed way, I can recommend the song Montsegur by uh, Iron Maiden. Uh, 
because mm. they wrote a song about it because of course they did <laughs> yeah that is true um we end with about a page's worth of story seeds nothing to say here good suggestions all around it's it's something that that generally they're they're good with all these story seeds here um, I'm, I'm, I'm just so, going to backpedal oh, sorry, yeah. real quickly because, again, just yeah. a bit, bit of trivia. Um, the, the, the Cathars, which were, uh, uh, I don't know if you should call them as successful, but at least quite a, a long-lived heresy in southern France. Uh, they, they were one of the more successful heresies yeah. until you get to Protestantism. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but for, for those of you who uh, cares about that, those sort of trivia... Uh, if you've ever heard the phrase "kill them all," uh, God will know their own uh, or His own. Mm. Uh, this is from uh, from the Crusades against the Cathars, where it was uh, a bishop, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who, uh, whose army was um, uh, conquering a a city that the city of Foix, if I recall correctly. Yes, uh, I'm. Yeah, I think so. Uh, but in this city lived not only Cathars, but uh, true, quote-unquote, uh, Christians or proper Christians as well. Uh, and according to legend, uh, because, of course, all the heretics had to be put to the sword, uh, but since there really wasn't any easy way of, of telling who were who, uh, the bishop is to have said, uh, kill them all, God will know his own. Uh, and and so they did because the the thought behind it was that well if if you're an innocent and a true Catholic uh, and you get murdered then you would just go straight to paradise or, or to heaven so exactly don't worry so, about it not a problem there <laughs> yeah um, yeah that that is that is quite uh, I mean it, it it's debatable whether or not it is it is true but I would say in the world of darkness it was it was definitely oh, true. Yeah. So chapter three is about those who are not nobles or clerics. Um, you could call them peasants, though times are changing and cities are growing. Mm. So more and more of these people are becoming town dwellers. And soon we'll see the rise of burghers, free people uh, of the towns and city leading to a, a fourth pillar. Uh, but that's uh, that's in the future. So we'll we'll look at this chapter. And once again, this chapter is structured differently from the others. We get an overview of peasantry without a framing story, with some comments on canines scattered throughout. Mm. I think this is organized better than the previous chapter, though I still think chapter one's organization is better. Like you said, uh, the editing in chapter one just seems yeah. uh, seems better. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. There are. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to comment on the picture on page 84 because that is that is very uh, vampire the masquerade early uh, 90s I think it's it's a naked lady who has oh, uh, yeah. who's sitting on a pile of corpses uh, having drunk in their blood and it's uh, it's I, I like the, the gothic arches in the background but uh, <laughs> yeah it's it's very stereotypical. Uh, it is. It is very much yeah, vampire nineties. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I like I like how they kind of divide. Like they they talk about Canite peasantry, and they're not only uh, talking about Canites who were or maybe even still is peasants, but kind of like how that the corresponding uh, class of peasantry in Canite society. Uh, yeah, they, they, they say that, that even though 98% of all people at this time are peasants, mm. only about 33% of all vampires come from peasant stock and then talk about that. And I, I think they do a really good job yeah. of, of, really, of really talking yeah. about, well, what does it mean 
uh, for vampires to, to come from peasant yeah. stock and how do vampires interact with yeah. peasants? I, I think it's a bit weird that they're 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 so exact on the number of 33% that is true, because yeah. they mentioned it just previously that that it's a third and and like okay can it can it does it have to be exactly a third can't it be yeah. 43% no it's got to be a third <laughs> or 33% so mm. i i don't know if, yeah. if there was a point they were trying to make or or something that um, went away in editing but i i just found it funny that they yeah, later on they get very specific about a number. We'll, we'll get mm. to that because yeah. I, I, I think that's just a bit funny. But uh, we have a, a big section on uh, rural peasantry, mm. which is obviously mainly serfs. As it's, wow, serfs at this time. Oh. Uh, they do mention free farmers and dedicate some time to the concept of being free from serfdom, yeah. which I like, especially that they mention that town air is free, that is that a serf who manages to live in a town uh, for a year and a day is free. Mm. Um, we also get briefly mentioned uh, slaves, which, referring back to our first episode of side quests, I really like. Uh, and then we get a description of how a typical medieval vi- village look mm. and a great sidebar on what peasants use different plants for, both in folk magic, medicine, yeah. and, pr- and their practical uses. Uh, in all of this, up until we get to the section on the changes of society and the rise of towns, my biggest complaint uh, is uh, is actually the mention of Prima Nocte. Yeah. Uh, now, if if you've seen Braveheart, uh, you know about this, the idea that a nobleman has the right to sleep with a newly wedded peasant woman on her first night of marriage. <clears throat> While I can certainly see this being a thing in the world of darkness, I have to say that this did not happen in the real world. It seems to have been a much later invention created to slander nobles, showing how evil they were. And if you think about it, what nobleman would want to antagonize not only his entire peasantry, but also his noble wife by by doing this? Yeah, exactly. I I agree. It's um, Again, maybe they wanted to make a point that this is the world of darkness and and not uh, real life, but it it just feels very cliched and... I, I personally wouldn't want mass rape uh, because that's what it is as uh, yeah. as a part of my um, role playing experience. So, yeah. in general, let's let's say this: do not take historical advice from Braveheart. Yeah, for lots of reasons. <laughs> Um, so that was my comments on on the section before we we get to towns. I don't know if if you have have anything from this section you want to to touch upon. Uh, no, if no, not that I can think of. If if so, I might be coming back to it. Uh, but yeah. uh, again, just just remember that this is like kind of your example village setting one a, yeah. uh, and it. If you want it differently in your part of, of medieval Europe, you you can't change it because it's it's not like it was the same all over uh, Europe. No, they didn't have a, a template. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, and and like I mentioned a bit previously, uh, in Sweden, um, peasants were usually uh, a bit more independent, uh, if nothing else, because they had big forests to hide in uh, if they wanted mm. to uh, rebel against the government. Uh, so uh, they had quite a lot of, of saying uh, for for really uh, basically up until modern democracy. You you had uh, what was called I think you would describe it as peasant marches, where basically 
a bunch of uh, more or less armed and outraged um, peasants from from some province where they had an, an issue uh, would basically march down to the capital and um, and and tell the king that hey this is wrong change it and uh, sometimes the king would listen to them and sometimes he wouldn't and some of the uh, rebellion leaders as they, they they then were called would be executed but they, he would you wouldn't execute all of the hundreds of peasants because then you have hundreds well, because of then who's going to till the land taxes <laughs> Yeah, uh, they they tried that a few times in Denmark, and the response was usually that the king hired German mercenaries. Mm. And so. and now we're getting way off topic, but it's it's an off topic that I, I like, so I'm gonna do it anyway, and it's my podcast. So uh, but, <laughs> go um, right ahead. I've, um, there's been some discussion that the reason why uh, Swedish um, peasants were comparatively more free than Danish peasants is basically because. Uh, Sweden is quite large and um, not very densely populated and, like I said, has lots of forests so you can hide in, whereas Denmark is quite small uh, and doesn't really have the big, or e- even back in this time, you didn't have the big forests to hide in. So it was no. easier to strike down against rebellions. Have you heard anything about that or do you have an opinion on it? Uh, I haven't heard anything about it, but it does make sense. I mean, Denmark uh, is, uh, especially compared to Sweden, quite a small mm. country. And um, also because we're we're a country with a lot of islands. So even if you tried to run away, uh, you wouldn't be able to run that far until yeah. you suddenly got stopped by the yeah. ocean. Um, I mean, uh, it, it, it is completely impossible in Denmark to be more than 30 miles or 50 kilometers away from the ocean. Uh, so, so there were just this natural barrier everywhere. Mm, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, but we, after peasants, which uh, in in Sweden we have learned were well armed, <laughs> uh, we move on to a section on towns, which at this at this point is very much a growing phenomenon. Mm. New towns are being founded. Towns are growing, and more and more towns are becoming large and powerful enough to be considered cities. There's a lot of good information here, especially considering that most Dark Ages vampire games are likely going to take place in towns or cities. So once again, I'm just going to mention a few complaints, so just assume that I'm A-OK with the rest. (laughs) Um, On page 96, we have a sidebar with city and town population at the time, and these seem in some cases to be too high for 1197. Paris at 50,000 and London at 25,000 sounds right, but... Ghent hasn't reached 40,000 yet, and Rune at 25,000 seems too high as well. So um, I would say it, it. there's a lot of, of information available online uh, on on city sizes throughout history. So if people want to, uh, to set it in a city, I suggest that they do research rather than use this, though you could easily say that canines are using their influence to try and entice more people into the cities to have a bigger feeding ground. But yeah, that's a good this idea, leads- actually. Yeah, but that's this leads into the uh, butterfly effect mm. that that you mentioned because these people have to uh, exist to be enticed, and the population explosion in Europe is only just starting. Yeah. Um, so, but mm. yeah, uh, we also have an unfortunate unfortunate mention of gypsies, which I think we have made our opinions yeah. on quite yeah. clear. Uh, and then we have something a bit silly with specific numbers. It talks about the rule that you can have one vampire per 1001 mortals and it's called the rule of a thousand and one nights uh that's that's you know a reference to 
a thousand and one Arabian mm. Nights. It's it's a bit silly, yeah. you know, to have that specific yeah. a term, but you know, it, it it gives us once again the the one to one thousand ratio. And finally, there's a section on guilds. And while I like this because guilds are becoming a real power uh, faction in Europe and will just continue to grow, um, they they um, I think they they miss something because uh, most of them have very secretive rituals that can be used and exploited by canines. They they almost guilds become sort of mystery cults yeah. with with semi-religious um, uh, rituals and things like that, which I think is perfect for vampires. Um, but they also, uh, they, they mention not only trade guilds, so blacksmiths and weavers mm. and etc., but also trade guilds like innkeepers, lawyers and so on. And they didn't exist in 1197. Uh, in fact, they were only just getting started in the 1230s, yeah. uh, which once again, you can invoke canine influence. Okay, the canines want everyone to organize in mm. guilds. Uh, but that, that's that's my take on this section. What what do you have? Yeah, I, I really don't have anything uh, else except the, the things that you mentioned. Uh, to, to expand on um, on the secretive uh, um, ceremonies and stuff by the guilds, this is, of course, where where we get uh, the mythology about the Freemasons. Uh, ah, because yes, Because yes. at this time... Uh, you started to build a lot of cathedral, and I'm... I'm literally uh, I'm, I'm using the word started quite literally because uh, in, in this era it could take hundreds of years to to finish a cathedral um, and the freemasons they uh, or as they they were called the masons they they often uh, traveled from building site to building site because if you live in a city and you build a cathedral then then you won't have any job more because you, you don't really build that many cathedrals in the same city. So you would travel to, mm. to another city uh, and you would hang out with your own uh, trades um, uh, or colleagues, tradespeople. Um, and and what you would do is that since it, you, you're a new arrival in town, you would build somewhere to live, which became the Mason's Lodge. Uh, and you would hang out with, with your own uh, colleagues uh, and perhaps, uh, and I think we mentioned this that uh, that languages um, or dialects mm. could differ quite uh, quite a lot just from from one area to another. So uh, so you would all of a sudden have this stranger that showed up in your city and and build their own place to live and and spoke in a strange language and and even just trade talk like different mm. phrases that that no one could understand because it's. Um, yeah, it, it's like talking to a doctor who only used the medical terms and, and just doesn't call it an appendix, uh, which <laughs> is a medical term. That, that's not a uh, that that's a bad example. So you're talking to a doctor who's talking about palpating stuff instead of just saying that you're he's poking you. Uh, yeah, so yes. so th this is now you have the seeds of the 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 masons. Uh, again, since it's since there there were a group of uh, tradesmen who uh, traveled quite a bit, uh, that would spread um, the the mystery about them that they they they're strange, they're uh, quite often foreign, uh, and they have their strange rituals, and they live in their own house, and they don't let anyone else in, and they have their trade secrets, and over the centuries, uh, this grew, and then. Uh, in, in 2020, you have the Freemasons uh, doing Corona with 5G because lizard people. 
so, oh, so oh, this yes. is uh, this is how the the mythology started, which is uh, I think is is quite interesting. And and we just know that there are some canines who are getting in of on the ground course. floor of this yeah, whole Masonic yeah. movement. You, you, I I wouldn't be surprised if there's like an old bitter Roman canine who's pissed off that people can't make cement anymore, so he tried to <laughs> he tries to influence the uh, the local masons to come on at least try this and and I will show you a lot of fancy magical stuff and and they just don't understand him because he doesn't speak French or something. Yeah, and, and they say cement. No, no, we need something more concrete. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. That that. Oh, that was bad. That was very bad. And moving, moving on. Uh, we end with a section that gives an insight into peasant life and death uh, beliefs and some suggestions on incorporating canines into it. I love the suggestion on how to use peasant superstitions against vampires yeah. as a, a sort of analog to true faith. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this is all solid information, so I don't don't really have much to say about no, this. I, again, I think I've mentioned it before that I, I like it when you mix superstition and religion, because at, at times there really wasn't that much of a difference. Um, oh no, definitely. So, but I'm, I'm just going to mention that the guy in the middle of the picture on page uh, 110 either has very tight hose or he needs to put some pants on. Uh, let me just find it. 110, you say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Those are some very, very tight yeah. tights. Yeah. Uh, or or he's, he's he should be wearing a dance belt oh, as well. Yeah. God damn it, man. Get, get, a, control, get a hold of yourself. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, the last chapter before the medical term appendix um, concerns the Italian city-states, mm. which are an anomaly at this point. Uh, though soon there will be a rise in free cities such as the imperial free cities in the Ro Holy Roman mm. Empire like Lübeck and Hamburg. Uh, anyway, this chapter gives a general description of how the Italian city-states, many of which are merchant republics, function and, and how they differ from the rest of Europe as described in the rest of the book. There's also some information on canines in the city-states. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but I will say uh, this is all solid information, really good for anyone running or playing a chronicle set in the Italian city-states, and just overall very informative. Uh, so what do you have to say yeah, about it? Yeah, I, I can't but agree, uh, and I think that you're, uh, you know more about Italian city-states at this time than I do, so uh, I haven't really, really found anything to, uh, to comment on. Uh, I do like the... The, the kind of story or plot hook on page uh, 125 where, where they're talking about, and excuse my pronunciation, but uh, gelves or ghibellines. Uh, oh, yes, this, this, is, this is a really cool uh, thing you can yeah, use. Yeah, and it's basically if, if you're one of those, if you're a gelf, I think it was, then you're supporting the, um, the, the, um, the the mortal uh, the the Rome, the empire basically and if you're a ghibelin you're supporting supporting the pope because at this time uh, there's kind of like a power struggle be between the secular power which is the emperor and uh, the, uh, the the religious power which is the pope because of course you have the holy roman empire so um, and I, I I'm I'm just gonna read it on that that. Um, uh, cruel storytellers take note. You can embroil your players in rivalry, rivalries, not just about local politics, uh, but by what they cautiously say about an empire several, several hundred miles away. Uh, so, so it's. I like 
how it uh, shows how um, well not global but how uh, how far spread uh, politic or, or political uh, consequences could be that basically if you um, if you join one side or the other uh, it it would have consequences uh, yeah and it's it's very difficult to remain neutral yeah. in this conflict because it's really a conflict about who gets to rule Italy. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, this that that's if if you're setting a chronicle in any of the the Italian city states, you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to include that, and and people are going to have to to take a stand one way or the other. Uh, they're they're going to get in trouble if they try to remain neutral. Mm. Um, but yeah, this I mean the the only the only complaint I have about I have about this chapter is um, I read the section on Venice and remembered that I was supposed to go to Venice this year. <laughs> Uh, but but then Corona oh. cancelled it. It's um, those Freemasons. So hope... Those bloody Freemasons. Yes, and their 5G, 5G networks. <laughs> oh, God. Um, hopefully next yeah. year. Um, so we end with an appendix with historical information. The first is an overview of the rulers of uh, various um, areas, uh, both past and present, not just... Um, not just kingdoms, but they're Roman emperors, they're popes, but it does not include the kings of Sweden for some yeah, reason. Yeah, and... I, I'm annoyed by that. Uh, it, <laughs> it has the kings of yeah, Denmark. It has exactly. the kings of and, Norway. And of course, uh, some of them Sweden. were at times uh, kings of Sweden as well. But yeah, it does. Yeah, feel, we we exchanged kings from time yeah, to time. Uh, it it does feel kind of weird that they didn't include. And and again, it's it's just this randomness that that we talked about previously. That that okay, let's throw in uh, Holland and Amsterdam in in Scandinavia when we're talking about Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was wondering because we're thinking, okay, Denmark at this point is is in ascendancy. Mm. Norway is going through almost a golden period. Yeah. But, I mean, Sweden wasn't just, you know, nobody in 1197. No, and, and what, uh, what, what really annoys me is that there are so many, like, if, if you look at... Um, at the list of kings in this period in Swedish history, it shows that it, it was also in ascendancy, but it was also a country in turmoil because you you switch kings back and forth, and and you could have one king being replaced by by someone else, and then they would probably go to Denmark, get some family, or or Norway as well, uh, get some friends and family, come back and and become king again. So it's if <laughs> if you want to set uh, a game. With, with a lot of, of political upheaval and infighting and uh, stuff that would make Game of Thrones look like, well, I don't know, Game of Thrones, you, you would. There, <laughs> there was a lot of, of political conflicts and um, people stabbing each other. And, and today you would call it a civil war, but uh, it wasn't really. It, Sweden, it was Sweden a war for at the this throne. time wasn't really one. Uh, kingdom. It was at least three no. uh, distinct ones, but usually you ended up as as king of all three. Uh, yeah, uh, less dragons. However. Yeah, less. Yeah. Um, so, but we we do have uh, there, there is uh, in in the Storsjö, the great uh, the great lake in Sweden. Uh, there is apparently a monster there. So I don't know if it was active back then, but uh, it's. <laughs> I think it's it's still on a list of protected uh, protected species. 
So, <laughs> awesome. so again, maybe maybe the that's a story seed right there. Those uh, pesky satites that went up to Scandinavia some time ah. back in, in uh, our previous reviews. So, uh, yeah, uh, but, but yeah, that must be I'm, it. I'm missing stuff on Sweden. They do mention in a timeline of like general things that happen. Yeah, that's that's the very last thing we have the timeline yeah, and, from and then 1066 the, the to 1314. To uh, to Finland in the 1240s, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, 1239, uh, and it, of course it went on for a while uh, because uh, Sweden does become uh, rather influential in um, in some areas. For example, in the in the 1300s, you had. Um, Heliga Begitta, Saint uh, Saint Bridget, uh, I think yes. she's called. And, uh, yeah, Saint Bridget. She was uh, she was actually the mentor of one of the the Danish queens. I can't remember if it was actually Margaret the first. Uh, might she, have it might been, have been. Yeah, it might have been. And and with the Kalmar Union, right? She, she yeah. And and she was uh, she has been at least beatified, but I think she uh, the Catholic Church made her a, a saint. And I think she has been made a saint. What's yes. interesting about her is not, not only was she uh, she wrote. A lot of stuff, uh, and she uh, and she had opinions on things as well, which I think is interesting. As uh, since a woman women with uh, weren't really allowed <laughs> to have it back then, so go her. Uh, but she she wrote to at least some of the popes, and she corresponded with them, and she also uh, founded a monastic order uh, that for for women though, so uh, nuns. Uh, which uh, is is actually still around uh, even today. Yeah, we have a chapter house uh, in the southern isles of Denmark. Oh, yeah, cool. Uh, there's there's one in in Rome as well, the the Brigitine uh, sisters. Mm. Uh, and there's uh, there's been a theory that because in her uh, grave there has been uh, they they found one skull and it might be hers and. Uh, there's an indentation on the inside of the skull that, according to some people, uh, might be from a benign tumor that might have given her epilepsy and and uh, oh. similar symptoms. Uh, that in in if um, she had one of those tumors, it might explain all the visions uh, she she had because she had a lot of vi- visions and and she wrote them down. Uh, which is interesting because you have you actually have uh, her testimony of of the vision she ha- she has. So if if mm. anyone is interested in that kind of stuff, uh, or perhaps as inspiration for a character or uh, maybe a Malkavian prophet, uh, then uh, I could deeply recommend looking into the life of uh, uh, Saint Bridget. Yeah. So. Both this uh, list of rulers and the timeline, they were really good at the time when it was harder to just look up mm. information on Wikipedia. Obviously, today you can access this information and more quite easily on the internet, but I can definitely see this as being a great resource 30 years yeah. ago. Uh, yeah, and, and even today, like if you use this and you see something like, oh, this this sounds interesting, and then you can just Google it and find out what it actually was. Exactly, yeah. Right, uh, time to give an overall impression of this book. Now, I, I don't think it'll surprise anyone when I say I loved it. 
Uh, it may have not have much game information other than suggestions on how to integrate canines in the three pillars of middle, medieval yeah. society. It doesn't have new powers or mechanics, but I don't think it needs it. And I don't really think they needed to put uh, in the disclaimer about historical accuracy because in general, uh, they gave a lot of good information and most of the mistakes that we have pointed out were minor nitpicks. So so they didn't need to say, oh, this is this is completely divorced from, from historical yeah. Um, yeah. accuracy. So for me, it's a 100% endorsement, no matter what edition of Dark Ages you are running or playing. So uh, what's your judgment? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to second that. Uh, it's uh, Again, there's a lot of information in it, and some of it might be... I think we missed a few things that aren't really that accurate. Probably, but, yeah. There's a lot of stuff yeah, but, in here. But then again, if, if we miss it, then it can't really be that important. Uh, <laughs> that is true. I, I, I said, <laughs> uh, realizing that if the Greek gods were uh, were real, then they would strike me down with hubris. Uh, but oh, yes. <laughs> uh, no, I, I completely agree. There, there are a lot of, of general information that, if nothing else, will serve perfectly as inspiration for how you want to create your feudal um, your your feudal uh, can, county or, or barony. Uh, speaking of, I, I'm just going to have to go back a bit because they, they talk about um, uh, mostly northern Italy and, and the Italian city-states. And then they talk about southern Italy and Sicily. And it just says... Forget everything the past 28 pages have said about uh, communes and read the first three chapters of the books because southern Italy and Sicily are feudal. They have no republics, no communes, and no city-states. Instead, Sicily and the southern section of it, uh, the Italian peninsula is ruled by the Emperor of Germany, who inherited it from uh, uh, the last of the Norman kings in 1194. Uh, so it's it's just... I, I love the, the simplicity of that. that <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. We have all this... Disregarded because in this part of Italy it's it's not applicable. Uh, so yeah. so yeah, it's it's very useful and uh, it's sometimes they they waste space by including things that aren't really important or true. But again, overall, um, it's uh, it's a very inspiring book. Is is how I'm going to yeah. put it. It it makes me want to find out more or or think about how i would include uh, for example superstition in in my game uh, mm. so excellent yeah. so uh, it, yeah. it gets at least three italian city states out of five from no it's gonna get all of them <laughs> i don't know how many were but yeah uh quite a few mm. excellent so next week we have a new episode of side quests and in two weeks we were supposed to be taking a look at transylvania by night however i'm currently playing in a transylvanian chronicles um chronicle uh, so we're gonna postpone transylvania by night and transylvanian chronicles for later because uh the game master doesn't want me reading these and since the game master is my wife um i i go for uh, domestic uh tranquility <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that means that uh, next time we're looking at Clan Book Cappadocian. Anyway, uh, any last words from you, Peter? Uh, no, I think I've said enough. <laughs> I, I think I have as well. In that case, it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Bye. Bye.